Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. Take a look at most of the big global problems, and you'll find the United Nations at the heart of the response. The World Health Organization is a UN agency that's coordinating the global response to the pandemic. The World Climate Change Talks, chaired by Britain this year, are a UN-sponsored process. And it's the United Nations High Commission for Refugees which is charged with helping nearly 80 million forcibly displaced people around the world. The man in charge of overseeing all these operations is the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and he joins me on the podcast this week. So how does the UN see the challenges ahead? The United Nations is a complex and sprawling organisation, but it generally works best when the world's nations, if not united, are at least cooperating. But the COVID-19 pandemic has shown that global governance leaves a lot to be desired. Here's South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, speaking this week at the World Economic Forum. We are deeply concerned about the problem of vaccine nationalism, which, unless addressed, will endanger the recovery of all countries. Things get particularly difficult for the UN if the five veto-wielding members of the UN Security Council, that's the US, China, Russia, the UK and France, are at loggerheads. But that is increasingly the situation, with more talk of a new Cold War between the US and China. In his own speech this week at the World Economic Forum, Antonio Guterres warned of a world splitting in two. We continue to fear the possibility of a great fracture, to see the world splitting in two, with the two largest economies on earth leading two areas with different dominant currencies, trade and financial rules, each with its own internet and its own zero-sum geopolitical and military strategies. We must do everything possible to avert such a division. So when I got Mr Guterres on the line from his office at UN headquarters in New York, I started by asking him about that warning of a world divided into two blocks. We are moving into that direction with two major economies, uh, China and the United States, moving into a situation in which they would both lead two different areas, each area with its dominant currency, its own trade rules, its own strategies on the internet, on uh, artificial intelligence. And the risk of that is, of course, that uh, inevitably, when things like that happen, the consequences in relation to security and military divides become more and more dangerous. And that is the reason why I'm a strong believer that this is the time to have a serious discussion between the United States, but not only the United States, United States and several other economies, Europe, uh, Japan and others, with China in order to find a common ground in trade, in technology, for the possibility to have one single economy, one single set of rules, the respect by all of international law, and to address what are complex issues in intellectual property, complex issues in uh, investment rules, complex issues, especially 
in the guarantees of security in relation to the cyberspace and related aspects uh, in order for confidence to be reestablished, trust to be reestablished, and uh, globalization uh, to allow us to take full profit of uh, um, its development. And what role for the UN in all this? I mean, presumably a world which is divided as it was in the Cold War makes your job extremely difficult. And is it possible for you to play any role in arresting that development? Well, first of all, I think that uh, we have now good perspective. The new American administration of constructive approach to a serious and difficult discussion in these regards. And I do not underestimate the enormous difficulties that exist, uh, namely in relation to human rights, for instance, between uh, the United States and China. But I see that uh, there is a strong commitment of different actors. The European Union is one of those actors. Uh, ASEAN, another actor. And from the point of view of my work and from the point of view of our advocacy, this is also essential to re-establish I would say, a functional relationship among the superpowers, namely in the context of a Security Council that remains divided in so many issues, that allows for spoilers to be intervening in so many areas of conflict in the world, triggering those conflicts or prolonging them. And we see it in Libya, we see it in Yemen, we see it in several other parts. And the truth is that today we have a number of, I would say, uh, uh, middle-sized or even relatively small countries that have a capacity to interfere in uh, different uh, situations of tension or conflict in different parts of the world. And the the dysfunctionality in relations among the superpowers creates a sense of impunity uh, that allows others to do whatever they want, knowing that nothing will happen to them. Are you thinking particularly about the Middle East? You mentioned Libya, Yemen. I mean, I know these are conflicts you've tried to help in. Today, if one looks at the situation there, it is clear that Turkey and Iran have probably more influence than Russia and the United States in what happens in the Middle East. Do you have any influence with Turkey and Iran? I mean, you've tried to get involved, I know, and called for global ceasefires and so on. Well, I do believe that, uh, first of all, there is the hope that a new dialogue will be re-established in relation to the JCPOA. I should not forget that the JCPOA was a, a very important instrument. This is the Iran nuclear deal, as it's commonly referred to, the JCPOA. It will be a complex negotiation that will have to take place, but at least there is a chance to be able to a situation in which an agreement is is possible. But more than that, I believe that when one looks at the Gulf, it reminds me of the Cold War. In the Cold War, there was uh, the the deep division that is known and the, the areas of confrontation that were known, but it was possible to have an Helsinki process. And the Helsinki process uh, paved the way to uh, then afterwards uh, things uh, moving progressively and probably it also contributed to the end of the Cold War. Now, what I think is that in the Gulf, independently of the huge divisions that exist, uh, there would be an interest of something similar to the Helsinki process, some kind of platform where the countries of the Gulf themselves and, uh, for instance, the permanent members of the Security Council and eventually a few other key actors internationally could be able to come together and, at least in some areas, uh, be it response to the COVID, be it in relation to climate change, create some platform of dialogue that progressively could help build trust, build confidence in a situation where today uh, the division is huge and uh, the uh, lack of trust and lack of confidence are undermining the possibility of the Gulf contributing to global peace and security. I mean, I suppose we've had a a massive test of international cooperation with this unprecedented crisis caused by COVID-19. 
How do you think the world has coped? Have we managed to come together or has this actually been a demonstration that international cooperation is not working well? Well, I think it is true that we had remarkable examples of solidarity, remarkable examples of uh, commitment. uh, But the truth is that, uh, to a large extent, each country has responded to the COVID with its own strategy, and there was no effective international cooperation. And so the virus moved from east to west, uh, from north to south. Now there is a risk that uh, it might move back. So the virus has benefited from an effective lack of international cooperation, with the World Health Organization that did its best uh, to promote uh, cooperation, but they have not the power to force countries to do uh, things. There are no instruments, legally binding instruments, to make countries work together. And uh, this has created a situation in which the virus has benefited enormously. And now uh, we face a huge challenge with the vaccine. Uh, I think it's absolutely essential uh, that the the vaccine becomes a global public good. Uh, There is some progress. COVAX is moving on. So we really need to create the mechanisms to allow to vaccines to be available for everybody everywhere. Because if that doesn't happen, and with the risks of mutations that now are becoming a reality, we know that if uh, uh, the global south does not have access to, to a proper vaccination, we might have mutations in the virus that make the vaccines uh, developed and uh, implemented in the global north uh, ineffective uh, in the near future. I mean, are you reliant, though, on individual nation states taking a decision in their enlightened self-interest, or is there some kind of international agreement that can be reached? We have the COVAX in which uh, 160 countries are involved, and we have seen uh, from uh, the UK, from the uh, now an announcement from the US, uh, a strong commitment, the European Union, a strong commitment to the COVAX. But we must make sure that the COVAX is fully funded, and we must make sure also that the manufacturers act in a way that allow for access of the developing world to the vaccines uh, to be effective as soon as possible. But realistically, I mean, if you look at the politics of it, you know, I know in my own country and you look in Europe, governments are under such pressures to vaccinate their own populations and being criticised for not going fast enough. Do you really think they're going to be able to say, well, okay, we're going to provide vaccines to the developing world first? Well, what I would say is that uh, it is more important to have uh, all those that are for instance, uh, in uh, the first line fight against COVID, vaccinated everywhere, than to have the whole population of uh, a rich country vaccinated and nobody vaccinated in a, in a poor country. So we need to have, I would say, enlightened self-interest and common sense in the way to do this. We need to work with the manufacturers in order to make their licenses available the capacity of production in the global south, in India, in Brazil, and in many other countries, is huge. So if licenses are made available, and if we are able to multiply the sources of production, we can perfectly respond to the needs of a global vaccination. The other issue that you, you speak about a lot at the moment and in your speech at Davos uh, is climate. And this is going to be a very, very big year for climate, isn't it, with COP26, with the UN at the centre of it? Well, for me, there are three essential priorities. First, we need to make the net zero uh, coalition a global coalition. We have about 65% of the emissions covered by a strong net zero commitment, but we need to make sure that we reach at least 90%. But uh, to bring India into the coalition, to bring Brazil, to bring uh, South Africa, to bring uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, to bring Russia into the coalition, it's also very important to give a very strong signal 
in relation to adaptation and in relation to finance. Adaptation has been, to a certain extent, forgotten aspect of climate action. Only 20% of climate finance goes to adaptation. And then finance. I mean, there is a question of credibility. The developed world committed to $100 billion per year in support of developing countries from private and public sources from 2020 onwards. And in 2020, this was not met. And we absolutely must make sure that it is met in 2021. And then that the instruments are created also to facilitate uh, private investment and private finance um, uh, with the national development banks and international multilateral institutions facilitating uh, from the point of view of guarantees, from the point of view of risk reduction, from the point of view of partnerships. We need to create the conditions for the massive mobilization of funds to support the global south. And that is important to have the global south also fully committed to the net zero. You say adaptation. To many in in the developed world, that might sound a bit fatalistic. Essentially, you're saying climate change is happening. All we can do now is help people to cope with it. What does adaptation actually mean in, in reality? Does it mean helping people to move, helping migration? Adaptation is not to replace mitigation. The first objective is to get to net zero emissions in 2050 as an instrument to allow the, for global temperature not to rise more than 1.5 degrees, as the scientific community tells is necessary if we want to avoid a catastrophic evolution in our world. So mitigation is a must. But the truth is that we already have a, a dramatic impact of uh, uh, natural disasters of all sorts, uh, typhoons, floods, uh, drought, uh, uh, in all parts of the world, but with particular impact in small island developing states, in Africa, in India, and uh, in other uh, more vulnerable, Bangladesh, other more vulnerable countries. And uh, it is absolutely essential to allow these countries to have the investments that are needed to build resilience, to protect their coastlines, uh, to allow for um, cities to be uh, better built. Uh, and this requires a, a very important investment. Obviously, climate is one of the factors of displacement in the world, uh, but uh, the solution is not in migration. For me, the solution is in building resilience and investing in creating the capacity for these countries to protect their communities. Now, climate's obviously the issue of the present and of the future, the very traditional issues that the UN has been involved with are things like peacekeeping, peacemaking. Some people say, perhaps a bit cynically, that one of the reasons you're focusing on climate is not just that it's important, but that those traditional things, trying to carve up peace deals, are just becoming very, very hard in this divided geopolitical situation we were discussing earlier. Is that the case, that you're having to put that to one side for a while? No, I don't think so. I mean... uh... It's not by chance that one of the things we have asked for in the context of the COVID was for a global ceasefire. So the questions of peace and security are front uh, in our agenda. We are totally committed to a number of very important peace processes. And uh, to be honest, both with UN action, but also with action of other partners, the African Union, it was possible to have a ceasefire in Libya. And very grateful to Chancellor Merkel and to the Berlin process. Uh, Of course, the problems are not solved. There is a long way to go. But there is a ceasefire. There is a political process taking place. The ceasefire is holding in Ukraine for the first time. The ceasefire is holding in Syria. And we are moving ahead with the Syrian uh, internal dialogue in relation to the Constitutional Committee. Uh, The ceasefire is holding in Sudan, uh, where a lot of progress was made uh, in relation to the peace agreement, as you know. With all the hiccups and problems, even in South Sudan, it has been more or less holding. And of course, unfortunately, in other situations, no. I mean, 
There are peace negotiations in uh, in Afghanistan, but violence is uh, extremely high. Yemen uh, has been a, a dramatic uh, problem for us, and we were not able until now to have the two parties coming together for a joint declaration with the ceasefire, with a number of confidence-building measures, and with the beginning, the re-beginning of a political process. And so I think we have a mixed picture, but uh, this is very much in the center of our concerns. And uh, Our peacekeeping operations uh, remain very active. The problem is that more and more we are doing peacekeeping where there is no peace to keep. And we have already a meaningful number of casualties in Central African Republic and Mali in the uh, uh, last few weeks. Uh, and we see uh, the need uh, to have, uh, in relation to some of the areas uh, uh, in the world where terrorism is taking profit, of the divisions that exist, be it in the Sahel, in the Lake Chad, now also in the DRC or Mozambique, we need to have the possibility to have African forces, peace-enforcing forces, forces of counterterrorism, but with mandates from the UN Security Council and the Chapter 7, and with predictable financing through assessed contributions. Unfortunately, this has not happened until now, and we see how fragile is the G5 Sahel, We see how fragile is the military mechanism put in place in Lake Chad. We see the difficulties that Amisom has found in Somalia. And we see how Mozambique is uh, in now in a dramatic situation to fight terrorism with very little international support. So we are putting everything we can in the reform of peacekeeping, in making peacekeeping more effective. But we recognize that we need to find the new instruments in the international community where there is no peace to keep, where peace must be enforced, where Terrorism must be fought, and uh, those instruments are lacking, and we need to make sure that we put them in place. One other criticism that I'd like to give you a chance to respond to has been made by the human rights community. I think Human Rights Watch accused you of being a Secretary General who hadn't stressed human rights, perhaps because they suggested you were intimidated by China or the United States. What's your response to that? Now, first of all, uh, We have human rights as a priority. I just launched uh, last year a call to action on human rights uh, with all the areas of uh, uh, relevant intervention. And uh, if you take areas related to uh, China or the United States, all the areas where we had human rights violations in the United States, migration, we were the first to say that families, for instance, cannot be separated. Children cannot be put uh, in uh, precarious situations. In relation to China, we have said time and time again, looking into Xinjiang, that it was absolutely essential to have all human rights respected and to have policies that make sure that uh, each community feels that their rights are respected, their identity is respected, but at the same time that they belong to the nation as a whole. Sometimes some people would like uh, this to be done in a more offensive way. I don't. It's a matter of style. But in relation to substance, I think we have been in the front line of all serious human rights violations, problems, and uh, with a very clear position in relation to the need for human rights to be respected. Now, you've done uh, four years. You've made it clear that you'd be willing to do a second five-year term as Secretary General. So what have you learned in your first term about what the job needs and how would you try to do it differently maybe in the second term? Well, uh, this was a very specific uh, context. I believe the next uh, mandate, if... Uh, I will have an extended, uh, the context will be, I uh, hope, better in the sense that there will be a more functional relationship among the superpowers, which will facilitate uh, both the peace and security aspects, but also the development aspects, the climate change aspects, and the response to the COVID that are central to our concerns. And the lesson of this period is, is simple. 
when people tend to neglect multilateral approaches, when people think that they can do it by themselves, they fail. Uh, if one looks at the uh, populist approaches to fight COVID, they failed everywhere. And so my, my hope, my sincere hope, is that there will be a stronger understanding in the years to come that we need to change course. I mean, 2020 was a kind of anus horribilis, where everything went wrong. COVID went wrong. Uh, in climate action, we were not able to reverse the trend. Uh, and uh, we have seen the aggravation of several peace and security aspects in the world. We have seen new threats in relation to nuclear proliferation. We have seen the vulnerabilities of the world becoming more and more evident. So this is the year to change course, to move from despair to hope, to move in the direction of uh, that we need to put the world back on track, to solve today's problems and to make sure that we protect the future generations. And I think the role of the United Nations is exactly to strongly advocate for all leaders in the world to understand these needs and to move from that understanding into concrete cooperation, uh, without which uh, I think we will not be able to ad address the huge challenges that the world will be facing in the next decades. Okay, Secretary General, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. All the best. That was Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. I hope you'll join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Rachman Review in all the usual podcast apps. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.